Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing recently published articles. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. Ozimertinib with or without chemotherapy in EGFR mutated advanced NSCLC. Background. Ozimertinib is a third-generation epidermal growth factor receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitor, EGFR-TKI, that is selective for EGFR-TKI sensitizing and EGFR-T790M resistance mutations. Evidence suggests that the addition of chemotherapy may extend the benefits of EGFR-TKI therapy. Methods In this Phase 3, international, open-label trial, we randomly assigned in a 1 to 1 ratio patients with EGFR mutated, exon 19 deletion or L858R mutation, advanced non small cell lung cancer, and SCLC, who had not previously received treatment for advanced disease to receive ozimertinib, 80 mg once daily, with chemotherapy, pemetrexed, 500 mg per square meter of body surface area, plus idrisosplatin, 75 mg per square meter, or carboplatin pharmacologically guided dose, or to receive ozimertinib monotherapy, 80 mg once daily. The primary endpoint was investigator-assessed progression-free survival. Response and safety were also assessed. Results A total of 557 patients underwent randomization. Investigator-assessed progression-free survival was significantly longer in the ozimertinib chemotherapy group than in the ozimertinib group, hazard ratio for disease progression or death, 0.62, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.49 to 0.79, P less than 0.001. At 24 months, 57%, 95% C, 50 to 63, of the patients in the ozimertinib chemotherapy group and 41%, 95% C, 35 to 47, of those in the ozimertinib group were alive and progression-free. Progression-free survival is assessed according to blinded independent central review was consistent with the primary analysis, hazard ratio, 0.62, 95% C, 0.48 to 0.80. An objective, complete or partial, response was observed in 83% of the patients in the ozimertinib chemotherapy group and in 76% of those in the ozimertinib group, the median response duration was 24.0 months, 95% C, 20.9 to 27.8, and 15.3 months, 95% C, 12.7 to 19.4, respectively. The incidence of grade 3 or higher adverse events from any cause was higher with the combination than with monotherapy, a finding driven by known chemotherapy-related adverse events. The safety profile of ozimertinib plus pemetrexed and the platinum-based agent was consistent with the established profiles of the individual agents. Conclusions 
first-line treatment with ozimertinib chemotherapy led to significantly longer progression-free survival than ozimertinib monotherapy among patients with EGFR-mutated advanced NSCLC. Transcatheter aortic valve replacement in low-risk patients at 5 years list of authors. Background A previous analysis in this trial showed that among patients with severe, symptomatic aortic stenosis who were at low surgical risk, the rate of the composite endpoint of death, stroke, or rehospitalization at one year was significantly lower with transcatheter aortic valve replacement, TAVR, than with surgical aortic valve replacement. Longer-term outcomes are unknown. Methods We randomly assigned patients with severe, symptomatic aortic stenosis and low surgical risk to undergo either TAVR or surgery. The first primary endpoint was a composite of death, stroke, or rehospitalization related to the valve, the procedure, or heart failure. The second primary endpoint was a hierarchical composite that included death, disabling stroke, non-disabling stroke, and the number of rehospitalization days, analyzed with the use of a win ratio analysis. Clinical, echocardiographic, and health status outcomes were assessed through five years. Results A total of 1,000 patients underwent randomization, 503 patients were assigned to undergo TAVR and 497 to undergo surgery. A component of the first primary endpoint occurred in 111 of 496 patients in the TAVR group, and in 117 of 454 patients in the surgery group, Kaplan-Meier estimates, 22.8% in the TAVR group and 27.2% in the surgery group, difference, minus 4.3 percentage points, 95% confidence interval, C, minus 9.9 to 1.3, P equals 0.07. The win ratio for the second primary endpoint was 1.17, 95% C, 0.90 to 1.51, P equals 0.25. The Kaplan-Meier estimates for the components of the first primary endpoint were as follows, death, 10.0% in the TAVR group and 8.2% in the surgery group, stroke, 5.8% and 6.4%, respectively, and rehospitalization, 13.7% and 17.4%. The hemodynamic performance of the valve, assessed according to the mean, plus or minus, valve gradient, was 12.8 plus or minus 6.5 mm Hg in the TAVR group and 11.7 plus or minus 5.6 mm Hg in the surgery group. Bioprosthetic valve failure occurred in 3.3% of the patients in the TAVR group, and in 3.8% of those in the surgery group. Conclusions Among low-risk patients with severe, symptomatic aortic stenosis who underwent TAVR or surgery, there was no significant between-group difference in the two primary composite outcomes. Erdofitinib or chemotherapy in advanced or metastatic urothelial carcinoma. Background. Erdofitinib is a pan-fibroblast growth factor receptor, FGFR, inhibitor approved for the treatment of locally advanced or metastatic urothelial carcinoma in adults with susceptible FGFR 3-2 alterations who have progression after platinum-containing chemotherapy. 
The effects of erdofitinibin patients with FGFR altered metastatic urothelial carcinoma who have progression during or after treatment with checkpoint inhibitors, anti-program cell death protein 1, PD-1, or anti-program death ligand 1, PDL one agents, are unclear. Methods We conducted a global phase 3 trial of erdofitinib as compared with chemotherapy in patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma with susceptible FGFR3-2 alterations who had progression after one or two previous treatments that included an anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1. Patients were randomly assigned in a 1-to-1 ratio to receive erdofitinib or the investigator's choice of chemotherapy, docetaxel or vinflunine. The primary endpoint was overall survival. Results A total of 266 patients underwent randomization, 136 to the erdofitinib group and 130 to the chemotherapy group. The median follow-up was 15.9 months. The median overall survival was significantly longer with erdofitinib than with chemotherapy, 12.1 months versus 7.8 months, hazard ratio for death, 0.64, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.47 to 0.88, P equals 0.005. The median progression-free survival was also longer with erdofitinib than with chemotherapy, 5.6 months versus 2.7 months, hazard ratio for progression or death, 0.58, 95% C, 0.44 to 0.78, P less than 0.001. The incidence of grade 3 or 4 treatment-related adverse events was similar in the two groups, 45.9% in the erdofitinib group and 46.4% in the chemotherapy group. Treatment-related adverse events that led to death were less common with erdofitinib than with chemotherapy in 0.7% versus 5.4% of patients. Conclusions Erdofitinib therapy resulted in significantly longer overall survival than chemotherapy among patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma and FGFR alterations after previous anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 treatment. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association Small Volume Blood Collection Tubes to Reduce Transfusions in Intensive Care, the Stratus Randomized Clinical Trial. Objective to determine whether transitioning from standard volume to small volume vacuum tubes for blood collection in ICUs reduces RBC transfusion without compromising laboratory testing procedures. Design, Setting, and Participant Step Wedge Cluster Randomized Trial in 25 Adult Medical Surgical ICUs in Canada, February 5, 2019 to January 21, 2021. Interventions ICUs were randomized to transition from standard volume, N equals 10,940, to small volume tubes, N equals 10,261, for laboratory testing. Main outcomes and measures The primary outcome was RBC transfusion, units per patient per ICU stay. Secondary outcomes were patients receiving at least one RBC transfusion, hemoglobin decreased during ICU stay, adjusted for RBC transfusion, specimens with insufficient volume for testing, length of stay in the ICU and hospital, and mortality in the ICU and hospital. The primary analysis included patients admitted for 48 hours or more, excluding those admitted during a 5.5-month COVID-19-related trial hiatus. Results in the primary analysis of 21201 patients, mean age, 63.5 years, 39.9% female, 
which excluded 6,210 patients admitted during the early COVID-19 pandemic, there was no significant difference in RBC units per patient per ICU stay, relative risk, RR, 0.91, 95% C, 0.79 to 1.05, T equals 0.19, absolute reduction of 7.24 RBC units slash 100 patients per ICU stay, 95% C, minus 3.28 to 19.44. In a pre-specified secondary analysis, N equals 27,411 patients, RBC units per patient per ICU stay decreased after transition from standard volume to small volume tubes, RR, 0.88, 95% C, 0.77 to 1.00, P equals 0.04, absolute reduction of 9.84 RBC units slash 100 patients per ICU stay, 95% C, 0.24 to 20.76. Median decrease in transfusion-adjusted hemoglobin was not statistically different in the primary population, mean difference, 0.10 grams slash DL, 95% C, minus 0.04 to 0.23, and lower in the secondary population, mean difference, 0.17 grams slash DL, 95% C, 0.05 to 0.29. Specimens with insufficient quantity for analysis were rare less than or equal to 0.03%, before and after transition. Conclusions and relevance use of small volume blood collection tubes in the ICU may decrease RBC transfusions without affecting laboratory analysis. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine. Relationship between clinician language and the success of behavioral weight loss interventions. Background. International guidelines recommend that primary care clinicians recognize obesity and offer treatment opportunistically, but there is little evidence on how clinicians can discuss weight and offer treatment in ways that are well-received and effective. Objective. To examine relationships between language used in the clinical visit and patient weight loss. Design. Mixed Methods Cohort Study Setting 38 Primary Care Clinics in England Participating in the Brief Intervention for Weight Loss Trial Participants 246 patients with obesity seen by 87 general practitioners randomly sampled from the intervention group of the randomized clinical trial Measurements Conversation analysis of recorded discussions between 246 patients with obesity and 87 clinicians regarding referral to a 12-week behavioral weight management program offered as part of the randomized clinical trial. Clinicians' interactional approaches were identified and their association with patient weight loss at 12 months, primary outcome, was examined. Secondary outcomes included patients' agreement to attend weight management, attendance, loss of 5% body weight actions taken to lose weight, and post-visit satisfaction. Results Three interactional approaches were identified on the basis of clinicians' linguistic and paralinguistic practices, creating a sense of referrals as good news related to the opportunity of the referral and equals 62, bad news, focusing on the harms of obesity, and equals 82, or neutral, and equals 102. Outcome data were missing from 57 participants, so weighted analyzes were done to adjust for missingness. Relative to neutral news, good news was associated with increased agreement to attend the program, adjusted risk difference, 0.25, 95% C, 
0.15 to 0.35, increased attendance, adjusted risk difference, 0.45, C, 0.34 to 0.56, and weight change, adjusted difference, minus 3.60, C, minus 6.58 to minus 0.62. There was no evidence of differences in mean weight change comparing bad and neutral news, and no evidence of differences in patient satisfaction across all three approaches. Limitations Data were audio only, so body language and nonverbal cues could not be assessed. There is potential for selection bias and residual confounding. Conclusion When raising the topic of excess weight in clinical visits, presenting weight loss treatment as a positive opportunity is associated with greater uptake of treatment and greater weight loss. Next article from British Medical Journal. Blood cell differential count discretization modeling to predict survival in adults reporting to the emergency room, a retrospective cohort study. Objectives to assess the survival predictivity of baseline blood cell differential count, BCDC, discretized according to two different methods, in adults visiting an emergency room, ER, for illness or trauma over one year. Design retrospective cohort study of hospital records. Setting Tertiary Care Public Hospital in Northern Italy. Participants 11052 patients aged more than 18 years, consecutively admitted to the ER in one year, and for whom BCDC collection was indicated by ER medical staff at first presentation. Primary outcome survival was the referral outcome for explorative model development. Automated BCDC analysis at baseline assessed hemoglobin, mean cell volume, MCV, red cell distribution width, RDW, platelet distribution width, PDW, platelet hematocrit, PCT, absolute red blood cells, white blood cells, neutrophils, lymphocytes, monocytes, eosinophils, basophils and platelets. Discretization cutoffs were defined by benchmark and tailored methods. Benchmark cutoffs were stated based on laboratory reference values, Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute. Tailored cutoffs for linear, Sigmoid-shaped and U-shaped distributed variables were discretized by maximally selected rank statistics and by optimal equal HR, respectively. Explanatory variables, age, gender, ER admission during SARS-CoV-2 surges and hospital admission, were analyzed using Cox multivariable regression. Receiver operating curves were drawn by summing the Cox significant variables for each method. Results of 11052 patients, median age 67 years, IQR 5181, 48% female, 59%, and equals 6489, were discharged and 41%, and equals 4563, were admitted to the hospital. After a 306-day median follow-up, IQR 208 417 days, 9455, 86%, patients were alive and 1597, 14%, deceased. Increased HRs were associated with age greater than 73 years, HR equals 4.6, 95% C equals 4.0 to 5.2, in hospital admission, HR equals 2.2, 95% C equals 1.9 to 2.4, ER admission during SARS-CoV-2 surges, wave I, HR equals 1.7, 95% C equals 1.5 to 1.9, wave 2, HR equals 1.2, 95% C equals 1.0 to 1.3.
gender, hemoglobin, MCV, RDW, PDW, neutrophils, lymphocytes and eosinophil counts were significant overall. Benchmark BCDC model included basophils and platelet count, area under the rock, ORAC, 0.74. Tailored BCDC model included monocyte counts and PCT, ORAC, 0.79. Conclusions Baseline Discretized BCDC provides meaningful insight regarding ER patients' survival. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Rosewood, a phase 2 randomized study of zanubrutinib plus obinutuzumab versus obinutuzumab monotherapy in patients with relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma. Purpose. The combination of zanubrutinib plus obinutuzumab, ZO, was found to be well tolerated with an early signal of efficacy in a phase 2 study. Rosewood is a phase 2, randomized study that assessed the efficacy and safety of ZO versus obinutuzumab in patients with relapse-slash-refractory, RR, follicular lymphoma, FL. Methods Patients with RRFL who had received greater than or equal to two lines of therapy, including an anti-CD20 antibody and an alkylating agent, were randomly assigned 2 to 1 to receive ZO or obinutuzumab, O. The primary endpoint was overall response rate, ORR by Independent Central Review, ICR. Secondary endpoints included duration of response, DOR, progression-free survival, PFS, overall survival, and safety. Results A total of 217 patients were randomized, ZO, 145, O, 72. Median study follow-up was 20.2 months. The study met its primary endpoint, ORR by ICR was 69%, so, versus 46%, O, P equals 0.001. Complete response rate was 39%, so, versus 19%, O, 18-month door rate was 69%, so, versus 42%, O, median PFS was 28.0 months, so, versus 10.4 months, O, hazard ratio, 0.50, 95% C, 0.33 to 0.75, P less than 0.001. The most common adverse events with ZO were thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, diarrhea, and fatigue. Incidences of atrial fibrillation and major hemorrhage were 3% and 1%, respectively. Conclusion The combination of ZO met its primary endpoint of a superior ORR versus O and demonstrated meaningful activity and manageable safety profile in patients with RRFL. ZO had a favorable benefit-risk profile compared with O and represents a potential combination therapy for patients with RRFL. Homa Harringtonine-based induction regimen improved the remission rate and survival rate in Chinese childhood AML, a report from the CCLG AML 2015 protocol study. Purpose Homa Harringtonine, HHT, is commonly used for the treatment of Chinese adult AML and all trans-retinoic acid, ATRA, has been verified in acute promyelocytic leukemia, APL. However, the efficacy and safety of HHT-based induction therapy have not been confirmed for childhood AML, and ATRA-based treatment has not been evaluated among patients with non-APL AML. Patients and Methods This open-label, multi-center, 
Randomized Chinese Children's Leukemia Group AML 2015 study was performed across 35 centers in China. Patients with newly diagnosed childhood AML were first randomly assigned to receive an HHT-based, H-arm, or a toposide-based, E-arm, induction regimen and then randomly allocated to receive cytarabine-based, AC-arm, or ATRA-based, AD-arm, maintenance therapy. The primary endpoints were the complete remission, CR, rate after induction therapy, and the secondary endpoints were the overall survival, OS, and event-free survival, EFS, at three years. Results We enrolled 1,258 patients, of whom 1,253 were included in the intent-to-treat analysis. The overall CR rate was significantly higher in the H-arm than in the E-arm, 79.9% B73.9%, P equals 0.014. According to the intention-to-treat analysis, the three-year OS was 69.2%, 95% C, 65.1 to 72.9, in the H-arm and 62.8%, 95% C, 58.7 to 66.6, in the E-arm, P equals 0.025, the three-year EFS was 61.1%, 95% C, 56.8 to 65.0, in the H-arm and 53.4%, 95% C, 49.2 to 57.3, in the E-arm. P equals 0.022. Among the per-protocol population, who received maintenance therapy, the three-year EFS did not differ significantly across the four arms, H plus at arm, 70.7%, 95% C, 61.1 to 78.3, H plus AC arm, 74.8%, 95% C, 67.0 to 81.0, P equals 0.933, E plus AC arm, 72.9%, 95% C, 65.1 to 79.2, P equals 0.789, E plus at arm, 66.2%, 95% C, 56.8 to 74.0, P equals 0.336. Conclusion HHT is an alternative combination regimen for childhood AML. The effects of ATRA-based maintenance are comparable with those of cytarabine-based maintenance therapy. Next article from Hepatology. Abdominal pain in patients with inflammatory bowel disease in remission. Background. Abdominal pain is highly prevalent in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, in remission, but the etiology is incompletely understood. Aim. To investigate the association of clinical, lifestyle and psychosocial factors with abdominal pain in patients with IBD in remission. Methods. We performed a prospective multi-center study enrolling consecutive patients with IBD. Data were collected between January 1, 2020 and July 1, 2021, using MyAbCoach, an established remote monitoring platform for IBD. Chronic abdominal pain and IBD in remission, IBDremission Pain Plus, was defined as abdominal pain score greater than or equal to 3, 0 to 10 NRS, on greater than or equal to 1 3 of all assessments combined with fecal calprotectin less than 150 micrograms slash g in 90 days around periodic assessments. Disease activity, lifestyle and psychosocial factors were assessed every 1 to 3 months during 18 months. Using linear mixed models, 
The association of these factors with abdominal pain over time was analyzed. Results We included 559 patients, of whom 429, 76.7%, remained in biochemical remission. Of these, 198, 46.2%, fulfilled the criteria for chronic abdominal pain. Abdromission pain plus patients were characterized by female sex, younger age, higher BMI, and shorter disease duration. They reported more often or higher levels of stress, fatigue, depressive and anxiety symptoms, and life events, all p less than 0.001. In the multivariable analysis, sex, disease entity, fatigue, depressive symptoms and life events were associated with abdominal pain over time, all p less than 0.05. Conclusion In this cohort of patients with IBD in remission, abdominal pain was common and associated with psychosocial factors. A more holistic treatment approach for patients with IBD suffering from abdominal pain may improve quality of care and subjective well-being. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Adding inflammatory markers and refining National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism Criteria Improved Diagnostic Accuracy for Alcohol-Associated Hepatitis Background and Aims Although histology is considered the gold standard for diagnosis of alcohol-associated hepatitis, ah, it is not required for entry into therapeutic studies if patients meet National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, NIA, consensus criteria for probable ah. Our aim was to assess the diagnostic accuracy of NIA criteria against liver biopsy and to explore new criteria to enhance diagnostic accuracy for AH. Methods A total of 268 consecutive patients with alcohol-related liver disease with liver biopsy were prospectively included, 210 and 58 in the derivation and validation cohorts, respectively. NIA criteria and histological diagnosis of alcoholic steatohepatitis, ASH, were independently reviewed by clinical investigators and pathologists from Hospital Clinic and Mayo Clinic. Using biopsy-proven ASH as gold standard we determined diagnostic capability of NIA criteria and proposed the new improved criteria. Results In the derivation cohort, diagnostic accuracy of NIA for AH was modest, 72%, due to low sensitivity, 63%. Subjects who did not meet NIA with ASH at liver biopsy had lower one-year survival compared with subjects without ASH, 70% versus 90%, p less than 0.001. NIA-MCRP criteria, created by adding C-reactive protein and modifying the variables of the original NIA, had higher sensitivity, 70%, accuracy, 78%, and specificity, 83%. Accuracy was also higher in a sensitivity analysis in severe AH, 74% versus 65%. In the validation cohort, NIA-MCRP and NIA criteria had a sensitivity of 56% versus 52% and an accuracy of 76% versus 69%, respectively. Conclusion NIA criteria are suboptimal for the diagnosis of AH. The proposed NIA-MCRP criteria may improve accuracy for non-invasive diagnosis of AH in patients with alcohol-related liver disease. A 
Association between the presence of metabolic comorbidities and liver-related events in patients with chronic hepatitis B. Background and aims. Patients with chronic hepatitis B, CHB, are at increased risk of hepatocellular carcinoma and liver-related mortality. In addition to hepatitis B-related factors, metabolic comorbidities may contribute to the progression of fibrosis. Therefore, we study the association between metabolic comorbidities and adverse clinical outcomes in patients with CHB. Methods We conducted a retrospective cohort study of CHB patients attending the Erasmus MC University Medical Center, Rotterdam, the Netherlands, and CHB patients who underwent liver biopsy at the Toronto General Hospital, Toronto, Canada. The presence of metabolic comorbidities, e. overweight, diabetes mellitus, hypertension, and dyslipidemia, was assessed based on chart review. The primary endpoint was liver-related events, defined as the first composite of hepatocellular carcinoma, liver transplantation, or liver-related mortality. Results We analyzed 1850 patients, of whom 926, 50.1%, were overweight, 161, 8.7%, had hypertension, 116, 6.3%, had dyslipidemia, and 82, 4.4%, had diabetes. During a median follow-up period of 7.3 years in turquoise range, 2.9 to 11.5 years, a total of 111 first events were recorded. Hypertension, hazard ratio, HR, 8.3, 95% C, 5.5 to 12.7, diabetes, HR, 5.4, 95% C, 3.2 to 9.1, dyslipidemia, HR, 2.8, 95% C, 1.6 to 4.8, and overweight, HR, 1.7, 95% C, 1.1 to 2.5, were associated with an increased risk for liver-related events. The presence of multiple comorbidities further increased the risk. Findings were consistent for patients with and without cirrhosis, among non-cirrhotic hepatitis B E antigen-negative patients with hepatitis B virus DNA less than 2,000 IU per milliliter and in multivariable analysis adjusting for age, sex, ethnicity, hepatitis B E antigen status, hepatitis B virus DNA, use of antiviral therapy, and the presence of cirrhosis. Conclusions Metabolic comorbidities in CHB patients are associated with an increased risk for liver-related events, with the highest risk observed in patients with multiple comorbidities. Findings were consistent in various clinically relevant subgroups, underscoring the need for thorough metabolic assessment in patients with CHB. Next article from Clinical Infectious Diseases. Plural empyema caused by Streptococcus intermedius and Fusobacterium nucleatum, a distinct entity of plural infections. Background. Many community-acquired plural infections are caused by facultative and anaerobic bacteria from the human oral microbiota. The epidemiology, clinical characteristics, pathogenesis, and etiology of such infections are little studied. The aim of the present prospective multicenter cohort study was to provide a thorough microbiological and clinical characterization of such oral type plural infections and to improve our understanding of the underlying etiology and associated risk factors. Methods Over a two year period, we included 77 patients with community acquired plural infection, whereof 63, 
82%, represented oral-type pleural infections. Clinical and anamnestic data were systematically collected, and patients were offered a dental assessment by an oral surgeon. Microbial characterizations were done using next-generation sequencing. Obtained bacterial profiles were compared with microbiology data from previous investigations on odontogenic infections, bacteremia after extraction of infected teeth, and community-acquired brain abscesses. Results From the oral-type pleural infections, we made 267 bacterial identifications representing 89 different species. Streptococcus intermedius and Orfusobacterium nucleatum were identified as a dominant component in all infections. We found a high prevalence of dental infections among patients with oral-type pleural infection and demonstrate substantial similarities between the microbiology of such pleural infections and that of odontogenic infections, odontogenic bacteremia, and community-acquired brain abscesses. Conclusions Oral-type pleural infection is the most common type of community-acquired pleural infection. Current evidence supports hematogenous seeding of bacteria from a dental focus as the most important underlying etiology. Streptococcus intermedius and Fusobacterium nucleatum most likely represent key pathogens necessary for establishing the infection. Next article from Journal of Infectious Diseases Stability and inactivation of monkeypox virus on inanimate surfaces. The spread of non-zoonotic monkeypox virus, MPXV, infections necessitates the re-evaluation of hygiene measures. To date, only limited data are available on MPXV surface stability. Here, we evaluate the stability of infectious MPXV on stainless steel stored at different temperatures, while using different interfering substances to mimic environmental contamination. MPXV persistence increased with decreasing temperature. Additionally, we were able to show that MPXV could efficiently be inactivated by alcohol and aldehyde-based surface disinfectants. These findings underline the stability of MPXV on inanimate surfaces and support the recommendations to use alcohol-based disinfectants as prevention measures or in outbreak situations. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. How does exercise, with and without diet, improve pain and function in knee osteoarthritis? A secondary analysis of a randomized controlled trial exploring potential mediators of effects. Objective. To explore the mediators of effects of two six-month telehealth-delivered exercise programs, including exercise with and without weight loss diet, on pain and function improvements in knee osteoarthritis, OA. Methods. Secondary analysis of 345 participants from a three-arm randomized controlled trial of exercise, exercise program, and exercise plus diet, diet plus exercise program, versus information, control program, was conducted. Outcomes were changes in pain, 11-point numeric rating scale, and function, Western Ontario and McMaster University's osteoarthritis index, score range 0 to 68, at 12 months. Potential mediators were change at six months in attitudes toward self-management, fear of movement, arthritis self-efficacy, weight, physical activity, and willingness for knee surgery. For the diet plus exercise program versus the exercise program, only change in weight was evaluated. Results 
Possible mediators of the exercise program versus the control program included reduced fear of movement, accounting for minus 1.11 units, 95% confidence interval, 95% C, minus 2.15, minus 0.07, improvement in function, and increased arthritis self-efficacy, minus 0.40 units, 95% C minus 0.75, minus 0.06, reduction in pain, minus 1.66 units, 95% C minus 3.04, minus 0.28, improvement in function. The diet plus exercise program versus the control program mediators included reduced fear of movement, minus 1.13 units, 95% C minus 2.17, minus 0.08, improvement in function, increased arthritis self-efficacy, minus 0.77 units, 95% C minus 1.26, minus 0.28, reduction in pain, minus 5.15 units, 95% C minus 7.34, minus 2.96, improvement in function, and weight loss, minus 1.20 units, 95% C minus 1.73, minus 0.68, reduction in pain, minus 5.79 units, 95% C minus 7.96, minus 3.63, improvement in function. Weight loss mediated the diet plus exercise program versus the exercise program, minus 0.89 units, 95% C minus 1.31, minus 0.47, reduction in pain, minus 4.02 units, 95% C minus 5.77, minus 2.26, improvement in function. Conclusion. Increased arthritis self-efficacy, Reduced fear of movement, and weight loss may partially mediate telehealth-delivered exercise program effects, with and without diet, on pain and or function in NEOA. Weight loss may partially mediate the effect of diet and exercise compared to exercise alone. Prevalence of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs prescribed for osteoarthritis, a systematic review and meta-analysis of observational studies. Objective. Our systematic review aimed to investigate the proportion of participants with osteoarthritis who were prescribed non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, by their healthcare provider. Methods. Electronic databases were searched for observational studies reporting NSAID prescribing to participants with diagnosed osteoarthritis of any region. Risk of bias was assessed using a tool designed for observational studies measuring prevalence. Random and fixed effects meta-analysis was used. Meta-regression investigated study-level factors associated with prescribing. The overall evidence quality was assessed using grading of recommendations assessment, development, and evaluation criteria. Results 51 studies were included, published between 1989 and 2022, with 6,494,509 participants. The mean age of participants was 64.7 years, 95% confidence interval, 95% C, 62.4, 67.0, and equals 34 studies. Most studies were from Europe and Central Asia, and equals 23 studies, and North America and equals 12 studies. Most studies were judged to be at low risk of bias, 75%.
Heterogeneity was eliminated when removing studies with a high risk of bias, to give a pooled estimate of NSAIDs prescribing to participants with osteoarthritis of 43.8%, 95% 36.8%, 51.1%, moderate quality of evidence. Meta-regression determined that prescribing was associated with year, decreased prescribing over time, P equals 0.05, and geographic region, P equals 0.03 higher in Europe and Central Asia and in South Asia than in North America, but not with clinical setting. Conclusion Data from over 6.4 million participants with osteoarthritis between 1989 and 2022 indicate that NSAID prescribing has decreased over time and that prescribing differs between geographic locations. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology. Large-scale analysis of meniscus morphology is risk factor for knee osteoarthritis. Objective. Although it is established that structural damage of the meniscus is linked to knee osteoarthritis, OA, progression, the predisposition to future development of OA because of geometric meniscal shapes is plausible and unexplored. This study aims to identify common variations in meniscal shape and determine their relationships to tissue morphology, O-onset, and longitudinal changes in cartilage thickness. Methods A total of 4,790 participants from the Osteoarthritis Initiative data set were studied. A statistical shape model was developed for the meniscus, and shape scores were evaluated between a control group and an O-incidence group. Shape features were then associated with cartilage thickness changes over eight years to localize the relationship between meniscus shape and cartilage degeneration. Results Seven shape features between the medial and lateral menisci were identified to be different between knees that remain normal and those that develop OA. These include length-width ratios, horn lengths, root attachment angles, and concavity. These at-risk shapes were linked to unique cartilage thickness changes that suggest a relationship between meniscus geometry and decreased tibial coverage and rotational imbalances. Additionally, strong associations were found between meniscal shape and demographic subpopulations, future tibial extrusion, and meniscal and ligamentous tears. Conclusion This automatic method expanded upon known meniscus characteristics that are associated with the onset of OA and discovered novel shape features that have yet to be investigated in the context of OA risk. Risk-benefit analysis of primary prophylaxis against pneumocystis gyrovecchiae pneumonia in patients with rheumatic diseases receiving rituximab. Objective. To identify a specific population of patients with rheumatic diseases receiving rituximab treatment for whom the benefit from primary prophylaxis against pneumocystis gyrovecchiae pneumonia, PJP, outweighs the risk of adverse events, AIDS. Methods. This study included 818 patients treated with rituximab for rheumatic diseases, among whom 419 received prophylactic trimethoprim-slash-sulfamethoxazole, TMP-slash-SMX, with rituximab, while the remainder did not. Differences in one-year PJP incidence between the groups were estimated using Cox proportional hazards regression. Risk-benefit assessment was performed in subgroups stratified according to risk factors based on the number needed to treat, NNT, to prevent one case of PJP and the number needed to harm, NNH, due to severe AIDS. 
Inverse probability of treatment weighting was applied to minimize the confounding by indication. Results During the 663.1 person years, there were 11 PJP cases, with a mortality rate of 63.6%. Concomitant use of high-dose glucocorticoids, greater than or equal to 30 mg day of prednisone or equivalent during four weeks after rituximab administration, was the most important risk factor. The PJP incidence, per 100 person years, was 7.93, 95% confidence interval, 95% C, 2.91 to 17.25, in the subgroup receiving high-dose glucocorticoids compared with 0.40, 95% C 0.01 to 2.25, in the subgroup without high-dose glucocorticoid use. Although prophylactic TMP-SMX significantly reduced the overall PJP incidence, HR 0.11, 95% C 0.03 to 0.43, the NNT to prevent one case of PJP, 146, was higher than the NNH, 86. In contrast, the NNT fell to 20, 95% C 10.7 to 65.7, in patients receiving concomitant high-dose glucocorticoids. Conclusion The benefit associated with primary PJP prophylaxis outweighs the risk of severe A's in patients with rheumatic diseases receiving rituximab and concomitant high-dose glucocorticoid treatment. Next article from Circulation October 24, 2023. Longitudinal follow-up of children with HLHS and association between Norwood shunt type and long-term outcomes, the SVR3 study. Objective. In the SVR trial, single ventricle reconstruction, newborns with hypoplastic left heart syndrome were randomly assigned to receive a modified glalic tausig thomas shunt, MBTTS, or a right ventricle to pulmonary artery shunt, RVEPAs, at Norwood operation. Transplant-free survival was superior in the RVEPAs group at one year, but no longer differed by treatment group at six years, both treatment groups had accumulated important morbidities. In the third follow-up of this cohort, Sarai, long-term outcomes of children with hypoplastic left heart syndrome and the impact of Norwood shunt type, we measured longitudinal outcomes and their risk factors through 12 years of age. Methods Annual medical history was collected through record review and telephone interviews. Cardiac magnetic resonance imaging, CMR, echocardiogram, and cyclergometry cardiopulmonary exercise tests were performed at 10 through 14 years of age among participants with Fenton physiology. Differences in transplant-free survival and complication rates, e.g., arrhythmias or protein-losing enteropathy, were identified through 12 years of age. The primary study outcome was right ventricular ejection fraction, RVEF, by CMR and primary analyzes were according to shunt type received. Multivariable linear and Cox regression models were created for RF by CMR and post-Fenton transplant-free survival. Results Among 549 participants enrolled in SVR, 237 of 313, 76%, 60.7% male, transplant-free survivors, MBTTS, 105 of 147, RVEPAs, 129 of 161, both, 3 of 5, participated in SURAI. RUF by CMR was similar in the shunt groups, RVEPAs, 51 plus or minus 9.6, N equals 90 and MBTTS, 
52 plus or minus 7.4, n equals 75, p equals 0.43. The RVEPAs and MBTTS groups did not differ in transplant-free survival by 12 years of age, 163 of 277, 59%, versus 144 of 267, 54%, respectively, p equals 0.11, percentage predicted peak FO2 for age and sex, 74 plus or minus 18%, and equals 91, versus 72 plus or minus 18%, and equals 84, p equals 0.71 or percentage predicted work rate for size and sex, 65 plus or minus 20% versus 64 plus or minus 19%, p equals 0.65. The RVEPAS versus MBTTS group had a higher cumulative incidence of protein-losing enteropathy, 5% versus 2%, p equals 0.04, and of catheter interventions, 14 versus 10 per 100 patient years, p equals 0.01, but had similar rates of other complications. Conclusions By 12 years after the Norwood operation, shunt type has minimal association with RUF, peak VO2, complication rates, and transplant-free survival. RUF is preserved among the subgroup of survivors who underwent CMR assessment. Low transplant-free survival, poor exercise performance, and accruing morbidities highlight the need for innovative strategies to improve long-term outcomes in patients with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Next article from American College of Cardiology antithrombotic regimens after left atrial appendage occlusion. Study questions. What is the safety and efficacy of various antithrombotic strategies after left atrial appendage occlusion, LAAO, in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation, AF? Methods. The authors performed a systematic literature search for randomized and observational studies comparing 2-plus antithrombotic regimens for patients with non-valvular AF undergoing LAO using endocardial or epicardial devices. Key antithrombotic regimen studies included direct oral anticoagulants, DOACs, vitamin K antagonists, VKAs, single antiplatelet therapy, SAPT, dual antiplatelet therapy, DAPT, and combinations of DOAC or VKA with SAPT. The primary efficacy outcome was device-related thrombosis. All-cause mortality and major bleeding were also assessed. Results 41 studies comprising 12,451 patients met the study inclusion criteria. DAPT, DOAC, DOAC plus SAPT, and VKA therapy regimens were all superior to no therapy at preventing device-related thrombosis. DOAC therapy was associated with a lower all-cause mortality compared to VKA, odds ratio, or 0.39, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.17 to 0.89. DAPT was associated with fewer thromboembolic events, or 0.50, 95% C, 0.29 to 0.88, without a difference in major bleeding as compared to SAPT. Looking across all therapy options, DOAC therapy was most likely to have lower thromboembolic and major bleeding risk. Conclusions The authors conclude that DOAC monotherapy had the highest likelihood of lower thromboembolic events and major bleeding for patients undergoing LAO for non-valvular A.
Dapagliflozin in patients with heart failure and deterioration in renal function. Background Sodium glucose cotransporter 2, SGLT2, inhibitors are guideline recommended in the management of heart failure, HF. Although these therapies can be initiated even in patients with comorbid chronic kidney disease, some patients may face deterioration of kidney function over time. Objectives In this study, the authors sought to examine the safety and efficacy of continuing SGLT2 inhibitors in HF when the estimated glomerular filtration rate, ECFR, falls below thresholds for initiation. Methods Associations between a deterioration of ECFR to less than 25 milliliters per minute slash 1.73 square meters, efficacy, and safety outcomes and treatment with dapagliflozin were evaluated in time-updated Cox proportional hazard models in a participant-level pooled analysis of the DAPA-HF study to evaluate the effect of dapagliflozin on the incidence of worsening heart failure or cardiovascular death in patients with chronic heart failure and deliver dapagliflozin evaluation to improve the lives of patients with preserved ejection fraction heart failure trials. Results Among 11,007 patients, 347, 3.2%, experienced a deterioration of ECFR to less than 25 milliliters per minute slash 1.73 square meters at least once in follow-up. These patients had a higher risk of the primary composite outcome, HR, 1.87, 95% C, 1.48 to 2.35, P less than 0.001. The risk of the primary outcome was lower with dapagliflozin compared with placebo among patients who did, HR, 0.53, 95% C, 0.33 to 0.83, as well as did not, HR, 0.78, 95% C, 0.72 to 0.86, experienced deterioration of ECFR to less than 25 milliliters per minute slash 1.73 square meters, pinteraction equals 0.17. The risk of safety outcomes, including drug discontinuation, was higher among patients with deterioration of ECFR to less than 25 milliliters per minute slash 1.73 square meters. However, rates remained similar between treatment groups, including among those who remained on study drug. Conclusions Patients with deterioration of ECFR to less than 25 milliliters per minute slash 1.73 square meters had elevated risks of cardiovascular outcomes yet appeared to benefit from continuation of dapagliflozin with no excess in safety outcomes between treatment groups. The benefit-to-risk ratio may favor continuation of dapagliflozin treatment in patients with HF experiencing deterioration of kidney function. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Diurnal range and intrapatient variability of ACT is restored with remission in Cushing's disease. Context. Single ACT measurements have limited ability to distinguish patients with Cushing's disease, CD, from those in remission or with other conditions. Objective. To investigate the changes in ACT levels before and after transmenoidal surgery, TSS, to identify trends that could confirm remission from CD and help establish ACT cutoffs for targeted clinical trials in CD. Design Retrospective analysis of CD patients who underwent TSS from 2005 to minus 2019. Setting Referral Center Patients CD patients and equals 253 with ACT measurements before and after TSS. 
Interventions TSS for CD Main Outcome Measures Remission after TSS Results Remission was observed in 223 patients after TSS. Those in remission had higher act variability at AM, P equals 0.02 and PM, P less than 0.001, time points compared to non-remission. The non-remission group had a significantly narrower diurnal range compared to the remission group, P equals less than 0001. A decrease in plasma act of greater than or equal to 50% from mean preoperative levels predicted CD remission after TSS, especially when using PM values. The absolute plasma act concentration and ratio of preoperative to postoperative values were significantly associated with non-remission after multivariable logistic regression, adjective P less than 0.001 and 0.001, respectively. Conclusions our findings suggest that act variability is suppressed in CD, and remission from CD is associated with the restoration of this variability. Furthermore, a decrease in plasma act by 50% or more may serve as a predictor of remission post-TSS. These insights could guide clinicians in developing rational outcome measures for interventions targeting CD adenomas. Next article from Neurology. Performance of a 18F fluorotosiper PET visual read method across the Alzheimer disease continuum and in dementia with Lewy bodies. Background and objectives recently, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the tau binding radiotracer, 18F fluorotosiper, and an accompanying visual read method to support the diagnostic process in cognitively impaired patients assessed for Alzheimer disease AD. Studies evaluating this visual read method are limited. In this study, we evaluated the performance of the visual read method in participants along the AD continuum and dementia with Lewy bodies, DLB, by determining its reliability, accordance with semi-quantitative analyzes, and associations with clinically relevant variables. Methods we included participants who underwent tau-PET at Amsterdam University Medical Center. A subset underwent follow-up tau-PET. Two trained nuclear medicine physicians visually assessed all scans. Inter-reader agreement was calculated using Cohen-Kappa. To examine the concordance of visual read-tau positivity with semi-quantification, we defined standardized uptake value ratio, SUVR, positivity using different threshold approaches. To evaluate the prognostic value of tau-PET visual read, we performed linear mixed models with longitudinal mini-mental state examination, MMSE. Results we included 263 participants, mean age 68.5 years, 45.6% female, including 147 cognitively unimpaired, CU, participants, 97 amyloid positive participants with mild cognitive impairment or AD dementia AD, and 19 participants with DLB. The visual read inter reader agreement was excellent, kappa equals 0.95, C 0.91 to 0.99. None of the amyloid-negative CU participants, 0.92, and one amyloid-negative participant with DLB, 8.3%, were tau-positive. Among amyloid-positive participants, 13 CU participants, 1352, 25.0%, 85 with AD, 8597, 87.6%, and 3 with DLB, 3 sevenths, 42.9%, were tau-positive. Two-year follow-up visual read status was identical to baseline. 
Tau Pet Visual Read corresponded strongly to Suver status, with up to 90.4% concordance. Visual Read Tau positivity was associated with a decline on the MMSE in CU participants, beta equals minus 0.52, C minus 0.74 to minus 0.30, P less than 0.001, and participants with AD, beta equals minus 0.30, C minus 0.58 to minus 0.02, P equals 0.04. Discussion The excellent inter-reader agreement, strong correspondence with SUVER, and longitudinal stability indicate that the visual read method is reliable and robust, supporting clinical application. Furthermore, visual read tau positivity was associated with prospective cognitive decline, highlighting its additional prognostic potential. Future studies in unselected cohorts are needed for a better generalizability to the clinical population. Next article from CHEST. Microbiological cure at treatment completion is associated with longer survival in patients with mycobacterium avium complex pulmonary disease. Background. Morbidity and mortality from non-tuberculous mycobacterial pulmonary disease, NTMPD, are increasing. Mycobacterium avium complex, MAC, is the most common cause of NTMPD. Microbiological outcomes are widely used as the primary endpoint of antimicrobial treatment, but their long-term impact on prognosis is uncertain. Research question. Do patients who achieve microbiological cure at the end of treatment have longer survival than those who do not? Study Design and Methods We retrospectively analyzed adult patients who met the diagnostic criteria for NTMPD, were infected with MAC species, and were treated with a macrolide-based regimen for greater than or equal to 12 months per guidelines between January 2008 and May 2021 at a tertiary referral center. Mycobacterial culture was performed during antimicrobial treatment to assess the microbiological outcome. Patients with three or more consecutive negative cultures collected greater than or equal to four weeks apart and no positive cultures until treatment completion were considered to have achieved microbiological cure. To assess the impact of microbiological cure on all-cause mortality, we performed multivariable Cox proportional hazards regression analysis adjusted for age, sex, BMI, presence of cavitary lesions, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, and underlying comorbid conditions. Results. Among 382 patients enrolled, 236, 61.8%, achieved microbiological cure at completion of treatment. These patients were younger, had lower ervivrocyte sedimentation rates, were less likely to use four or more drugs, and had shorter treatment duration than those who failed to achieve microbiological cure. During a median follow-up of 3.2, first quartile to third quartile, 1.4 to 5.4, Years after treatment completion, 53 patients died. Microbiological cure was significantly associated with reduced mortality after adjustment for major clinical factors, adjusted hazard ratio, 0.52, 95% C, 0.28 to 0.94. The association between microbiological cure and mortality was maintained in a sensitivity analysis that included all patients treated less than 12 months. Interpretation Microbiological cure at completion of treatment is associated with longer survival in patients with MACPD.
Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Combination of ball and computed tomography differentiates progressive and non-progressive fibrotic lung diseases. Objectives, to explore the utility of combining baseline ball and computed tomography, CT, in differentiating progressive and non-progressive PF. Methods, the derivation cohort consisted of incident cases of PF for which ball was performed as part of a diagnostic workup. A validation cohort was prospectively recruited with identical inclusion criteria. Baseline thoracic CT scans were scored for the extent of fibrosis and usual interstitial pneumonia, UIP, pattern. The ball lymphocyte proportion was recorded. Annualized FVC decrease of greater than 10% or death within one year was used to define disease progression. Multivariable logistic regression identified the determinants of the outcome. The optimum binary thresholds, maximal Wilcoxon rank statistic, at which the extent of fibrosis on CT and the ball lymphocyte proportion could distinguish disease progression were identified. Measurements and main results, ball lymphocyte proportion, UIP pattern, and fibrosis extent were significantly and independently associated with disease progression in the derivation cohort, and equals 240. Binary thresholds for increased ball lymphocyte proportion and extensive fibrosis were identified as 25% and 20%, respectively. An increased bowel lymphocyte proportion was rare in patients with a UIP pattern, 8 of 135, 5.9%, or with extensive fibrosis, 7 of 144, 4.9%. In the validation cohort, N equals 290, an increased bowel lymphocyte proportion was associated with a significantly lower probability of disease progression in patients with non-extensive fibrosis or a non-UIP pattern. Conclusions Ball lymphocytosis is rare in patients with extensive fibrosis or a UIP pattern on CT. In patients without a UIP pattern or with limited fibrosis, a ball lymphocyte Next article is from Clinical and Translational Gastroenterology. Real-time evaluation of helicobacter pylori infection by convolution neural network during white light endoscopy, a prospective, multicenter study. Introduction Convolutional neural network during endoscopy may facilitate evaluation of helicobacter pylori infection without obtaining gastric biopsies. The aim of the study was to evaluate the diagnosis accuracy of a computer-aided decision support system for H. pylori infection, CATS-HP, based on convolutional neural network under white light endoscopy. Methods Archived video recordings of upper endoscopy with white light examinations performed at Sir Run Run Shaw Hospital, January 2019-September 2020, were used to develop CATS HP. Patients receiving endoscopy were prospectively enrolled, August 2021-August 2022, from three centers to calculate the diagnostic property. Accuracy of CATS HP for H. pylori infection was also compared with endoscopic impression, urea breath test, URT, and histopathology. H. pylori infection was defined by positive test on histopathology and or URT. Results Video recordings of 599 patients who received endoscopy were used to develop CATS HP. Subsequently, 456 patients participated in the prospective evaluation including 189, 41.4%, with H. pylori infection. With a threshold of 0.5, CATS-HP achieved an area under the curve of 
95% confidence interval, C, 0.93 to 0.97, with sensitivity and specificity of 91.5%, 95% C 86.4% to 94.9%, and 88.8%, 95% C 84.2% to 92.2%, respectively. CATS HP demonstrated higher sensitivity, 91.5% versus 78.3%, mean difference equals 13.2%, 95% C 5.7% to 20.7%, and accuracy, 89.9% versus 83.8%, mean difference equals 6.1%, 95% C 1.6% to 10.7%, compared with endoscopic diagnosis by endoscopists. Sensitivity of CATS HP in diagnosing H. pylori was comparable with URT, 91.5% versus 95.2%, mean difference equals 3.7%, 95% C minus 1.8% to 9.4%, better than histopathology, 91.5% versus 82.0%, mean difference equals 9.5%, 95% C 2.3% to 16.8%. Discussion. CATS HP achieved high sensitivity in the diagnosis of H. pylori infection in the real-time test, outperforming endoscopic diagnosis by endoscopists and comparable with URT. Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. Rare variants in complement gene in C3 glomerulopathy and immunoglobulin-mediated membranoproliferative GN. Background C3 glomerulopathy and idiopathic immunoglobulin-mediated membranoproliferative GN, IGMPGN, are rare complement-mediated kidney diseases. Inherited forms of C3 glomerulopathy slash IGMPGN are rarely described. Methods 398 patients with C3 glomerulopathy N equals 296 or Ig MPGN, N equals 102, from a national registry were screened for three complement genes, factor H, CFH, factor I, CFI, and C3. Patients with rare variant, minor allele frequency less than 0.1%, were included. Epidemiologic, clinical, and immunologic data at diagnosis and kidney outcomes of patients were retrospectively collected. Results 53 different rare variants, including 30, 57%, 13, 24%, and 10, 19%, in CFH, CFI, and C3 variants, were identified in 66,398, 17%, patients. 38, 72%, variants were classified as pathogenic, including 20, 30, 66%, and 11, 13, 84%, Variants in CFH and CFI, respectively, impairing synthesis of factor H or factor I regulators. 15 of 53, 27%, variants were of unknown significance. At diagnosis, 69% of patients were adult, median age of 31 years. With the exception of biologic stigma of thrombotic microangiopathy, which was more frequent in patients with CFI variants, 514, 36%, versus 137. 3%, and 0% in the CFH group and C3 group, respectively, P less than 0.001. The clinical and histologic features were similar among the three variance groups. The kidney outcome was poor regardless of the age at onset and treatment received. 
65%, of patients with rare variant reach kidney failure after a median delay of 41, 19 to 104, months, compared with 28%, 55, 195, after a median delay of 34, 12 to 143, months in the non-variant group. Among 36 patients who received a kidney transplant, two-year recurrence was frequent, occurring in 39%, without difference between variant groups, and led to graft failure in three cases. Conclusions In our cohort, 17% of C3 glomerulopathy slash IG MPGN cases were associated with rare variants in the CFH, CFI, or C3 genes. In most cases, a quantitative deficiency in factor H or factor I was identified. The presence of a rare variant was associated with poor kidney survival. Toralidine slash heparin lock solution and catheter-related bloodstream infection in hemodialysis, a randomized, double-blind, active control, phase 3 study. Background. Catheter-related bloodstream infections, CRPSIs, are one of the most prevalent, fatal, and costly complications of hemodialysis with a central venous catheter, CVC. The LOC-IT100 trial compared the efficacy and safety of a toralidine-slash-heparin catheter LOC solution that combines toralidine 13.5 mg-slash-ml and heparin, 1,000 units-slash-ml versus heparin in preventing curbsies in participants receiving hemodialysis via CVC. Methods LOC-IT100 was a randomized, double-blind, active control, multicenter, phase 3 study that enrolled adults with kidney failure undergoing maintenance hemodialysis via CVC from 70 U.S. sites. Participants were randomized 1-to-1 detorolating slash heparin catheter LOC solution or heparin control catheter LOC solution, 1,000 units slash ml. The primary endpoint was time to curbsy as assessed by a blinded clinical adjudication committee. Secondary endpoints were catheter removal for any reason and loss of catheter patency. On the basis of a pre-specified interim analysis, the Data and Safety Monitoring Board recommended terminating the trial early for efficacy with no safety concerns. Results In the full analysis population, an equal 795, 9 participants in the toralidine slash heparin arm, N equals 397, 2%, and 32 participants in the heparin arm, N equals 398, 8%, had a curbsy. Event rates per 1,000 catheter days were 0.13 and 0.46, respectively, with the difference in time to curbsy being statistically significant, favoring toralidine slash heparin, P less than 0.001. The hazard ratio was 0.29, 95% confidence interval, 0.14 to 0.62, corresponding to a 71% reduction in risk of curbsies with toralidine slash heparin versus heparin. There were no significant differences between study arms and time to catheter removal for any reason or loss of catheter patency. The safety of toralidine slash heparin was comparable with that of heparin, and most treatment emergent adverse events were mild or moderate. Conclusions Toralidine slash heparin reduced the risk of developing a crypsy in study participants receiving hemodialysis via CVC compared with heparin with a comparable safety profile. Next article is from Kidney International Reports. 
randomized trial comparing SGLT2 inhibition and hydrochlorothiazide on sympathetic traffic in type 2 diabetes. Introduction Reductions in sympathetic nervous system activity may contribute to beneficial effects of sodium glucose co-transporter 2, SGLT2, inhibition on cardiovascular outcomes. Therefore, we tested the hypothesis that SGLT2 inhibition with empagliflozin, EMPA, lowers muscle sympathetic nerve activity, MSNA, in patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus, T2DM, compared with hydrochlorothiazide, HCT, to discern SGLT2-specific actions from responses to increased natriuresis. Methods We randomized patients with T2DM on metformin monotherapy to either 25mg slash DMPA, N equals 20, or 25mg slash DHCT, N equals 21, for 6 weeks in a parallel, double-blind fashion. We assessed MSNA by perineal microneurography, blood pressure, cardiovascular and metabolic biomarkers at baseline and at the end of treatment. Results Both drugs elicited volume depletion, as indicated by increased thoracic impedance. Compared with HCT, MPA caused 1.23 kg more body weight loss, P equals 0.011, and improved glycemic control. Seated systolic blood pressure decreased with both treatments, P less than 0.002. MSNA did not change significantly with either treatment, however, MSNA changes were negatively correlated with changes in body weight on MPA P equals 0.042, and on HCT P equals 0.001. The relationship was shifted to lower MSNA on MPA compared with HCT, P equals 0.002. Conclusion Increased renal sodium excretion eliciting body weight loss may promote sympathetic activation. However, sympathetic excitation in the face of increased sodium loss may be attenuated by SGLT2 inhibitor-specific actions. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week.